Welcome back to Now. In this podcast, we celebrate all things related to the variously compiled world of pop as we open up the gatefold vinyl sleeves, unfold the cassette inlays, or slip out CD booklets. We will also consider the wider world of pop culture and how our favourite compilation albums shaped our lives and now fondly stand as time capsules for our own musical journeys. I hope that you will enjoy sharing in the memories and insights. Please spread the word and let me know your thoughts at www.backtonow.music.blog or on Twitter with myself, Ian, at Pop Rambler. Joining me for this episode is RTS-nominated TV production designer Richard Drew. With over 30 years in the industry, Richard's credits include The Inbetweeners, Comic Relief, Friday Night with Jonathan Ross, this time with Alan Partridge, The 11 O'Clock Show, and most recently the wonderful Netflix comedy Afterlife with Ricky Gervais. Oh, and Going Live and Christmas Top of the Pops, of which more later we hope. He describes himself as a self-confessed pop fan since he can remember and cites his first and last gigs as Bowie at Milton Keynes in 83 and Madonna at the London Palladium in February earlier this year. Richard's job has seen him grace the stage with, amongst others, Bowie, McCartney, Brian Ferry, Bono, Stevie Wonder and the Pet Shop Boys. Of his Jonathan Ross set, Madonna said it was neat, Tony Hadley said it was fabby and Grace Jones said nothing. Caroline Hearn got him Hookie's autograph, Mark Ronson lost his laptop charger, and perhaps most intriguingly, Richard was introduced to Danny Minogue in a makeup room whilst being made up as Sinead O'Connor. And if that isn't an introduction, then I don't know what is. Richard, welcome back to now. Hi, how are you? Right. Good, thank you. How are you doing in this crazy world of ours? I'm doing okay. I'm I'm working. Um, uh, that wasn't always the case this year, as I'm sure a lot. You know, a lot of my sort of um, contemporaries were all in the same boat. But yes, I'm doing a second series of a thing called Intelligence um, at the moment, which is uh, Sky uh, Sky One comedy with Nick Mohammed and David Schwimmer. So I'm sort of um, we're two weeks into a six-week shoot on that. So it's just nice to be working again because I had sort of five months. Um, because of the crazy nature of uh, 2020 without any work. And once I'd run out of things to sort out and tidy away and, and discovered gardening, um, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a timely, thank God I'm back working and earning some money as well. So, yeah. And I would imagine the, the working pattern for season two is, is slightly different from the working pattern of season one. Most definitely. Um, I, as a production designer, I'm, I'm in an unusual position. I'm not actually allowed on set. So it's designed and we put it back. I mean, it's a bit, I don't know if anybody knows the show very briefly, but it's, a, it's an entire office uh, floor with all computer screens and glass walls and mezzanines. And so we, we, we put it, the set take, gets taken down. It's put back in for season two. I've dressed it, got it all looking lovely, and I've had to step away and um, let them get on with it. So I'm literally on the other side of the studio wall in case there's an emergency to deal with. Yeah, very unusual. Everybody's sort of socially distanced, wearing a mask for 10, 12 hours a day. Still the best job in the world, in my, you know, in my humble opinion, but um, just not as much fun at the moment. So tell us, what does a TV production designer do it, well i'm a dream maker to be honest ian um <laughs> in, in essence uh i sort of anything you see on screen uh if you're watching a drama or a comedy anything that's in the back of shot i have some kind of responsibility for you mentioned afterlife 
in the Tony's flat, Tony's house in Afterlife is a complete set build. So all of those uh, details in terms of the size of it, the colour of it, what furniture goes where, why there's a record collection on the wall, why he's got a book collection, why there are photos of you know his his long past wife in uh, in picture frames. Any element of that is my responsibility. So kind of read a script, break a script down, and then try and create a character with props and colour. Anything you see within the frame, that's kind of it. And then in light entertainment, obviously, it's creating a whole a whole world for you know. If it was like the Jonathan Ross show you mentioned, then it's sort of creating a sort of a sort of a nice set to shoot against. Which oddly, with Jonathan's set was um, the the red padded walls, which was a little homage to Bowie's Ashes to Ashes video. So uh, Jonathan's big. Jonathan's a big old um, a Bowie fan. Like most yeah. of us. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so there's a little homage to Bowie's uh, Ashes to Ashes video in uh, in that Jonathan Ross set. I'm going to mention something that I noticed, and I, I love how you've got Tony's speakers on the wall. Oh, yeah. But however, I keep thinking, should he not be sitting facing those speakers? <laughs> but you know what? Aesthetically, Richard, it looks fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> so well, just a point. Essentially, that's uh, that's where I am. Where I am. It's at, um, but what we what you don't see actually, and it's only in a couple of shots. He's got an old um, sort of classic sort of fifties, sixties cabinet with a with a record player in. And actually, uh, Ricky is brilliant, and I I'm, I think it's well documented. He was a sort of he managed Suede for a yeah, bit. Yeah. I think I think if that memory serves me correctly, he had some involvement with Suede, but he's definitely a. And he was in a band in the 80s. In 84, he was in a band called uh, Shona Dancing. That's some wonderful he, photographs of that. That's it. Yeah. So he's not, and he, write, and he peppers his scripts with musical references. So I wanted to give Tony's character the kind of backstory of music because it's me, it, it, they, uh, music appears throughout the story, you know, through the script. So there's a record player in the far corner. There's a stack of records. We never see them. They're just there. I know they're there. Also helps throw that idea he's a bit of a collector, which is why, again, the books are on the walls. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. Probably um, the speakers aren't in the best place, but they look great. And I found a brilliant, I found a brilliant reference of a book case that sort of sat over a, a sofa. Corners are always problems in when you're designing, because you get into sort of very tight shots and it's always the back of shot, there's a corner with a bad join or dodgy paint. So actually the cables are doing a wonderful job of hiding a slightly <laughs> rough... No, do you know what? They look fabulous. And it, so so much of, um, you know, the story takes place on that couch with, yes. you know, with, uh, with Ricky. Um, so, yeah, absolutely perfectly placed. But it's just the train spotter in me, Richard. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's kind of... Uh, if you can get any more shots of the hi-fi in on season three, I'd be... All right, I'll have good. a word. I'll have a word with Ricky. <laughs> So, growing up, let's yeah. get to this part of your life. What were the musical memories that you've got, the influences on listening choices? Definitely my mum, actually. Um, and I guess it's a bit of a cliche to all of us who grew up loving music, that there was music in the house. And I think, that it, for me, it was, you know, definitely there. Mum, mum in particular, she was, um, I mean, she bought records very early doors. She worked in a record shop in sort of early 60s, 1962, 63, something like that. So a little sort of record stop in Chepstow in Gwent, just by the, seven, well, pre the Seven Bridge, to a point where she had to go onto a, uh, 
to sell records, you had to complete an EMI training weekend down in London. So mum's first ever trip to London was to go to the Hayes um, plant in uh, EMI's Hayes factory to see records being made and also attend a kind of seminar at uh, Manchester Square, which must have been just amazing. She'd never been to London. She was sort of down for the weekend and she's got this wonderful photo of this class Literally every weekend they'd have a different group of people and she's got this photo of people in their sort of blokes in their sort of very narrow ties and their two-piece suits and, you know, a couple of women in beehives and sort of very sort of well-presented in this sort of class photo. And they would have done this every weekend and send this group of people down to sort of learn how to sell records. But she was a, she was a gig-goer in the early 60s, so she saw the Beatles a couple of times, very early doors when they were you know, first couple of albums and with the Beatles and that sort of era. And then she saw Jerry and the Pacemakers. I think she saw Dusty. Mum's music taste is a massive influence on me. She, um, she, this Chepstow is sort of, if anybody doesn't know, is sort of the border between England and Wales. And she, she swears blind that she used to see Tom Jones go in for, for coffee um, in, a, in a shop next to Woolworths across the street from where she worked. And she always tells me, oh, this is before he was famous. And I always say to I always say to her, if it was before he was famous, how did you know it was Tom Jones? And of which she can never answer the question. And she's absolutely convinced my mum that she was she was responsible for selling the Beatles to America because she sold um a couple of early Beatles albums to some American tourists in her record shop. And she's convinced that she is the reason why the Beatles were so successful in America. One other McCartney story I've got is that I um in 1991, uh, I was doing, um, I ended up doing the Christmas uh, Top of Pops. And also, uh, just prior to that, I'd been working on um, Grange Hill. I did a whole year, or indeed term, uh, on Grange Hill. And we were, we were in a uh, Studio C at uh, Elstree, and across the road was Studio D at Elstree, where they, um, or B, sorry, where they uh, did uh, Top of the Pops, because they'd moved it from uh, television centre around that time. So over lunchtime, we used to go in and, and, and see what bands were, were doing their thing. And, it, uh, it, you know, for a pop fan, of course, that was brilliant. I remember the KLF particularly doing uh, uh, the ice cream song, Tammy Wynette uh, yeah. song, and watching them rehearse that. And that was fantastic. But on one occasion, McCartney was in doing, uh, I think the track is called Hope and Deliverance. I think. I could be wrong. But it's not a particularly memorable song, but there was a moment in the rehearsals, they were going to get members of the audience on stage. I think that was the plan. So for rehearsals, they, were, they just asked members of the crew. So I've gone in there over a lunch just to see what's going on. The next thing I know, I'm stood on stage between McCartney and Linda while he mines through this track. It is a it is a claim to fame uh, to rank right up there. I mean, thankfully, in what I do for a living, if you want to play claim to fame with me, I tend to win. Yes, on, on quite a number of occasions. <laughs> but uh, yeah, as a, as a, as a claim to fame, it's it's pretty high. So yeah, he's miming to hope and deliverance, and he's in front of me, and Linda's over my right shoulder, and I'm stood somewhere, you know, somewhere between the middle. And at the end of the performance, he did just happily sign. Autograph. So I, I got it for my mum because uh, uh, I'm a good Essex boy. I got a um, I got a signed uh, piece of paper, McCartney signed piece of paper for my mum, which she which she treasures, absolutely treasures. Funnily enough, she she loved the Beach Boys' early doors. She loved the Beatles' early doors. But arguably, when they get to their 
kind of critical peak with Pet Sounds and Sergeant Pepper, that's the moment my mum decides not to like them anymore because they're too druggy. Um, which always, which always makes me laugh. She kind of quits on them just as they're, they're getting interesting. And my mum particularly, my dad was a big sort of jazz fan and a sound, interestingly a soundtrack music fan. So my first ever album I bought was Jeff Love's uh, big music, big movie, war movie music thing. Yes. Is that how, hang on, I wrote it down. Let me get it right. I big, think that's Jeff, right. Big movie war themes. Uh, yes. Jeff Love album. And there was also, a, he had a Star Wars uh, theme, space theme album. They're two of the first albums I ever bought. And uh, that's probably a result of sat on the sofa watching war movies with my dad. And also my dad's love of soundtracks. He's got the Alamo and it's trad jazz, which is a Frank Sinatra uh, soundtrack. He's got the Mary Poppins soundtrack and definitely a, a lasting a lasting impression on me going into me buying records. 84 is a is a fab year for me because I'm 16 going becoming 17 I'm finishing school uh, and I'm starting <clears throat> sixth form college in uh, Barking uh, in near Romford Barking College of Technology uh, whose alumni are Billy Bragg uh, who was there a number of years before me and but uh, more recently recently vacated the year before I went was Stedman from Five Star so I mean auspicious that's good company auspicious pop company um, but it was a really good year 84 I was working I was sort of working at British Home Stores on a, a Saturday job uh, selling lighting I was going to a truckload of 18th birthday parties because you know, it was sort of or 17, 18th birthday party. So that was all happening. I started going to gigs. As you mentioned, I've been to Bowie in 83, Milton Keynes, and then ended 83 going to see John Fox and Howard Jones at the Lyceum. Not, not in the same gig. Uh, uh, kind of week, oh, oh, that would be an interesting gig. That would be um, an interesting gig, yeah. Um, but both kind of synth kind of gods and uh, kind of a week apart, really. So I literally ended December 80, I think it was the 27th of December I'd seen Howard Jones at uh, the Lyceum. 84 was the gig year. That was when I sort of, me and my mates were off into London, at, you know, when we could to go and see uh, a list of bands. And I've written them down because I'm, I'm terrible. I, my memory can be terrible. So I went to see Thomas Dolby a couple of times, twice in a week, oh. once at the Dominion and once at the Lyceum again. Uh, the Psychedelic Furs, I saw uh, Ultravox at uh, Hammersmith, Depeche Mode at Hammersmith. And I ended the year seeing Howard Jones again at the Royal Albert Hall, which I'd completely forgotten about. They're definitely of a style. There's definitely a synth. There's a strong emphasis on synth. Thomas Dolby got to meet after the Dominion show, which was the first time I'd ever stayed behind to try and meet somebody. And I ended up talking to him very briefly. And, 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 and sadly, uh, his bassist as well, Matthew Seligman, who died during the summer. And I, I heard the news via social media and I was really upset by it because oddly since then I've met people who knew him. I don't know why, it just had a real, it really hit me quite hard. And it was probably because he, it was him and Thomas were like my first pop stars I'd ever met. And obviously Matthew Seligman ended up playing bass with Bowie at Live Aid and, and bass on Absolute Beginners. And I remember him relaying some story about how the Thompson Twins had basically kicked him out of the band. And it felt like quite an exclusive thing being told by a celebrity to just me and my mates you know these spotty sort of 17 17 year olds at the dominion so yeah I, that was a really really sad and if you wikipedia him he did some fascinating stuff and he's sort of a bit of an unsung hero of the british pop industry 
at the Cybertone first gig, gig uh, Morrissey sat behind me, um, <laughs> which which was, if you think about it, it's quite sort of astounding, really, because he was we, he was like a row back or two row, rows back. He was there with um, a girlfriend or, you know, just just a girl. And then we were all through the gig. We kept thinking, that is Morrissey, that is Morrissey, me and my mates. And at the end of the gig, we sort of just went up and asked for his autograph and he happily gave it. And by all accounts, that's not something he does very often now. But yeah, so, um, quite, you know, a nice little claim to fame. Got to meet Morrissey at a Psychedelic Thursday gig. I did a chat show uh, and Midjur was a guest. I was introduced to Midjur by his, because I said to his, I was with his agent at the side of the stage and said, you have no idea that guy. I loved Ultravox growing up. And yeah. the tour that I saw in 84 actually visually was was brilliant and actually informed as a, as a, produ- as a budding production designer, sort of slightly informed ideas in my head about that something I'd like to do for a living. So I ended up having a, a, a chat with him at the bar and uh, he was brilliant and very generous with his time but probably a little bit nonplus because I was just reeling off these things and then he was telling me things back and then I was completely dumbstruck yeah I'm your biggest fan like they've never heard that before Ultravox was probably my first big band I have to yeah. say introduced to the Vienna album at the age of 10 11 was just mind-blowing probably a good thing I don't ever meet Midjur because I will corner him <laughs> And there will be there will be conversations about B sides, and um, and he'll probably be looking for the nearest exit. To be honest, as far as 1984 goes, I'm going to draw the conversation around to now four yeah. uh, as we move forward. How do you how do you feel your influences led you to that kind of electro pop sound? Well, I've sort of I've written a list down of the bands I was listening to around that time, and I've got all the bands that I saw. So Ultravox, Psychedelic Furs, Thomas Dolby, Depeche Mode. I was hugely into. Um, there was a band called Doctor Calculus um, who had a track called Program Seven, which is a brilliant sort of electro pop song. We continue this block transmission with Program Seven. Propaganda, Art of Noise, a band called Ice and the Falling Rain who had one hit. I wish I could remember the name of the track now, but that I was into them. Blamange, I was still sort of reeling from Japan and David Sylvian. And I discovered the Pet Shop Boys in 84, which I went to see Neil Tennant do a, a Q&A at the Royal Academy last year. I, I was sort of sat there through the entire Q&A and it was lovely and he was very charming and being very Neil Tennant. There was a moment that I thought to myself, God, I was still at school when I first heard the Pet Shop Boys and I'm still listening to the Pet Shop Boys now. And I, you know, I still think they're amazing. And I just think that is mind blowing, you know, that there they were in 84, they'd had the first version of West End Girls come out. So the Bobby O version. And I just blown away with it. And they kind of got that sort of breakdance thing going on in the beat. It was a far more electro sound. It wasn't it wasn't fully molded into the pop sound that they, you know, they kind of claimed as their own. So I was really into that very early doors. And also there was like Break Machine were doing that sort of thing. And I know all of that sound came out of my love of the Malcolm McLaren album the previous year, Duck Rock, yes. which I think is one of the greatest albums of the 1980s, often overlooked. But... Oddly, if we're talking compilations, um, but there was an album that came out 
end of night, end of 81, beginning of 82, called Modern Dance. It's a compilation album, KTEL, I think. It, for me, is the defining compilation album. It absolutely changed my musical life because up until that point, I think there was a bit of a hodgepodge of what I was listening to. Obviously, I've mentioned those other bands just then, but also I started school in 78, so the Scar thing was really huge. Another compilation that actually I only reminded myself of last night was like Dance Craze, Scar, live album so that was a sort of a, a thing in my head around that time but all that sort of mod revival thing was going on and then 8081 the new romantic thing was sort of happening and then suddenly this modern dance album lands at my local Woolworths. it's got uh omd japan human league heaven 17 Depeche Mode, Simple Minds, John Fox, The Cure, Gary Newman, blah, blah, blah. It's a great, great album. And they cram so many tracks into the album and there's like, you know, barely a groove before the next track starts. It just went, I went, wow, this is just amazing. And it totally changed my musical my musical path and where, where what I suddenly started to listen to. Suddenly it was synthesizers and nothing else. Uh, and a, a quite an iconic front cover, slightly... Slightly bizarre back cover. That I, I, do you know what? Actually, oddly, I'd love to know who those two people are. I've always wondered who they are and where they are now. This is obviously one of the themes that you know we talk about on this podcast is when you have a well-curated set of songs, it becomes memorable and they live with you. I've no doubt you will hear a song off that album and you will know yeah. in your head what comes next. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's instinctive. Yeah, and where you first heard it, I mean, it's just it's all of those, it's all of those things. One of my first album purchases was an album uh, I think also on KTL called Char Hits Eighty One. When I ever hear Vienna by Ultravox, I yeah. must hear Just Can't Get Enough by Depeche Mode <laughs> next, because again, and I think you know you mentioned as well how the tracks all flowed quite nicely into each other. KTL yeah. seemed to do that; they had quite short run-out grooves on the tracks. And, well, there's um, that thing you used to do when you were taping the charts. You'd obviously wait for the uh, wait for the DJ to speak, so you'd rewind the tape with a pencil, obviously. Yeah. And then when you press record, you almost got that slight blend into the next track, and that was yeah. And sometimes they that worked like an absolute dream. Not that, not that we ever recorded legally off the radio. No, it's, it's, it's killing music, apparently. It's, home, home taping is still killing music, absolutely. <laughs> um, there was another compilation I wanted to talk about, actually, very quickly, because there was also, uh, in 78, when I started school, I remember going to my first, I say started school, secondary school, I should say, but my first school disco, which we had in our form room, and I remember taking uh, Action Replay, which is a K-Tail album. Yes. Uh, and, it's, uh, and it's got um, a lady in... Uh, spandex or whatever on the cover uh, roller skating and she's got a uh, uh, sparkler and it's all in the photographs taken on a you know a long exposure so this sparkler is doing all these wonderful things but I, again i've got the track list in front of me and it starts with rat trap mm. by boontown rats hanging on telephone giving up giving in by the three degrees i love america by patrick uve i lost my heart to a starship trooper supernature by sarone it's a real mix of tracks, but oddly, those disco tunes and that sort of slightly high energy sound is something again that I I really love high yeah. energy. And I actually thought Hazel Dean when she first came onto the scene in '84 was rather brilliant. I thought, oh yeah, you know, I thought she was searching and wherever I go, wherever I do, a great dance tracks, really good dance tracks. I'm going to come back to Hazel Dean later because I've got, okay. I've got, I've got, <laughs> I've got a now four story about Hazel Dean, but okay. we'll come back to that. Okay, but, you're, okay. but you're right, actually, you know, coming back to 1984 and the whole, the whole kind of pop culture, high energy really hit a peak 
1984. Yeah. But interestingly enough, now, out with the likes of, say, for example, Bronski Beat or Dead or Alive, very, mm. very little of it is still heard today yeah. when we do retrospectives or you listen to those greatest hits radio stations or whatever. It's something yeah. that's kind of slipped away slightly, but you forget how absolutely huge it was in 1984. I mean, it was Stock Aiken and Water, the beginnings of Stock Aiken and Waterman. I mean, they're, you know, it informed what lay ahead. And in fact, a lot of what I was talking about earlier with that sort of synth sound, there's definitely high energy elements in that. A lot of dance, you know, dance music. But you're absolutely right. It sort of overlooks Sylvester is another... And Divine, I love Divine. Um, yeah. You know, so I, 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 and the Boys Town Gang, which is a sort of a little bit earlier, sort of slightly predated. A record yeah. I always think of as well from 84 is Shannon, Let the Music Play. Oh, that's an amazing which song. Which is, you know, is, and it's, and that kind of straddles that kind of hip hop sound that was coming out yeah. from all the street sound compilations in 84 as well. You know, I Feel For You by Chaka Khan is a sort of a, the lineage from Shannon to that, I think is. Absolutely. Yeah, is definitely a thread. That Shannon track, I, I, I have very occasionally DJ parties. It's not, I, I would never claim I am a DJ by any stretch of the imagination, but that is a guaranteed floor filler, as I'm sure you know. I mean, it's just an amazing, the opening sounds like an electric shock right at the start of the record, and it, it's, it's an unrelenting gem of a record, let the music play. When we think about 1984, that, for me, epitomises what 1984 was about. There's a great pop sensibility about it. It's it's still got that chorus, the verse, the structure. Yeah. It's telling that wonderful sad dance floor story that you know yeah. runs through all of those types of yeah. you know those types of tracks. I don't know that I ever went to a club up until 1984. I was going to loads of parties, you know. At, 17th, 18th birthday parties in village halls all around Essex, and you know, as, as we've all done. But I don't know that I ever went to a club. But my first club experience was actually in Germany because in the summer of 84, I went to, I had a pen pal in uh, Bremen, flew over on a plane. I was, ju- you know, I just turned 17. I thought I was the dog's doodahs going over on my own and spending, you know, spending two weeks over in Germany in the middle that middle Saturday I was there and I've actually looked this up and this, and I always in my head remembered it as being called the Zeppelin Club and I, I looked it up on Google only this week and yes, it was called the Zeppelin. I, I, I don't know whether I'd ever made that up but it actually did exist. So my first club experience was actually in Germany and I remember coming back from that holiday with that kind of electro Euro sound that was kind of big in 84. So you, Laura Branigan doesn't appear on now. She appears on the Hits album. But that Laura Branigan uh, track, Self Control, yeah. is very much in my head what that sounded like. That's what I'm trying to sort of convey. And also the Alphaville record, which again is on the other Hits album. But also there was a track by a band called Vicious Pink called can't you see yes yes is an awesome track and i remember hearing that but there's one other track which is called vamos a la playa it's a phenomenal record and my my abiding memory of that holiday was then coming couldn't wait to get back home to tell my mates about these records i'd heard that you know presumably couldn't get over in the uk and was, you know, and I'm, I think I bought the Regera record and took it back and, you know, claimed it as an import. And um, so when I was doing my tape compilations, I could write import, feeling very sort of uh, very high and mighty with myself for sort of doing that. That's a big memory for me, that, that holiday and those tracks and 
the the neonness of it all and so yeah I just remember that being a very vivid moment in 1984 life and then as I said I finished the summer started my sixth form college which was probably the best years education I ever had in my life I I'd gone from school which I didn't particularly enjoy and I did a performing arts course my first week on that performing arts course going into the canteen and there was this girl called Leggy who was a genius on her keyboard and she had a Casio synth and she was playing hot jam, hot lunch from the fame. And I swear to God, I went into this canteen and there were people in leggings and leg warmers <laughs> dancing on tables and she was playing this thing and it just, I walked into fame. It definitely wasn't that, it was embarking in East London, but it, it definitely wasn't school. And <laughs> You know, and it, it, was, it was just a, yeah, it was a fun year, 84. And for me, that's what it is. It, you mentioned it about the neonness, how exciting it was. And, you know, living in it, maybe we didn't fully, retrospectively, you can say that. I think at the time, maybe you probably didn't fully real, realise it, but it definitely felt very exciting. And of course, I was, you know, I was peak 80s. I was, I was 16, becoming 17. I was a really good age to be in 1984. We were talking earlier on as well before we started recording just about how how the 80s almost evolved to a kind of zenith point around about 84, 85. And when you look back now at the media, those television clips, the top of the pops and so forth, you can see it's almost like there was a kind of move towards that neonness. I don't even know if that's a word, but we're creating a word now called neonness. It was probably to do with the technology that was available for music making. I think that was developing. Um, you know, you listen to some of those very early OMD records, you listen to Architecture Morality. I mean, it's, it's, it's fabulous. But by the time OMD had got to mid-80s and you look at those tracks like Tesla Girls and so on, yeah. it was the kitchen sink et al was thrown yes. in there. You know, and a lot of people would say, oh, after architecture morality, I know Dazzle Ships has now had a bit of a renaissance as well. It all it all changed for OMD. But you know what? If you stick on Tesla Girls off now four, that is a glorious pop moment. Amazing record. And the the cover is very good. I think it's one of the I think it's a Peter Saville cover as well. It's yeah. it's a very uh, a very made up set of lips surrounded by a load of cables in different colours. So it's like she's the, the girls kissing somebody through this sort of circle of cables. I, that, that's a terrible description. I mean, that's the worst. <laughs> Do you know what? I can that's actually see it though. My my little OMD story is that I very nearly I bought Architecture Morality, and that, that, there is an album that I will play and yeah. play the day I die. I just think it's a again a Peter Saville cover. I, I, it's a it's a genius album but it so easily could have been very different because I think the week I bought it was the day I went in to buy the Buggles album. <laughs> and um, I, I, was, I, went into, I went into Woolworths to buy it and I saw the Buggles display on the wall. And for some reason, the OMD album caught my eye. And so I walked in wanting to buy Buggles and walked out with OMD. So make of that what you will. 84, you've got all the, you know, the big hitters from the early 80s. I was, you know, I, I sound like I know these things. I haven't looked a little bit this up. So... You know, Spandau and Duran, they're on their second, third albums, you know, so there's been that first wave and that, you know, the slight naivety of that first Spandau ballet, ballet album compared to Parade, which comes out in 84, which is super gloss, you know, via True. And then Duran, the naivety of that first album, and then you've got Rio, which is 
glossy and then seven of the ragged tiger comes out and it's even more glossy it's it, it's super polished and culture club have done the same oddly the big band of 84 are wham and wham are only on their second album in 84 and I, I you know whether there is anything in that i don't know but they kind of embrace the neon thing from the get-go with the gloves and the you know the t-shirts and all the rest of it but the the, the big hitters from sort of 83 are, are sort of touring the world at that point and yeah, it, it it is super super glossy. I think it's also money. I guess there's you know there's money money out there in '84, and everything is is super polished. And you know Jackson is is Zenith. Madonna is suddenly coming on. The Prince is about to go global. It, you know it's a, it's it's a fun time. And also actually something we've not mentioned is all the the movies with music soundtracks, which yes. is which is a compilation genre in itself. But I think in '84. You've got Footloose, uh, Together in Electric Dreams, Karate Kid. It's a very glossy, Hollywoody time, 84. The other thing I wanted to uh, pick up on is that Wham and Frankie suddenly had these Catherine Hammett t-shirts that suddenly came everywhere i've got one i've got an original frankie says relax an official frankie product it says on the thing in the corner if you think about that now and you think about 2020 and you think about um Catherine hammett is still producing t-shirts with big letters on them and when you think of the 80s and you think of relax by frankie goes to hollywood one of the first things that pop in your head is probably somebody wearing neon leg warmers and wearing a white t-shirt that says relax on it. It's a fascinating thing that suddenly happened and suddenly everybody was wearing it. Band-Aid, the Feed the World, Bob Geldof's got t-shirts with all of that, with those words on it. As a lasting legacy from 1984, those t-shirts have got to be right up there as a, a defining thing that we're still living with now. Three of the, of the biggest iconic 1984 moments are Wham, Frankie Goes to Hollywood and Band-Aid, and they are all tied together with those slogan t-shirts. With a t-shirt. <laughs> the simple, iconic t-shirts, there was a kind of thread that ran through, a thread, sorry, there was a thread that ran through all the t-shirts. There we go. Very yeah, Very good. Yeah, that was good. That's getting cut out. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to now. That's what I call music for. Did you buy it? I didn't, and that's that, there's a confession, right? <laughs> it, it's interesting. We've talked about kind of compilations, albums, and, and leading into this. And I, I wrote down some of the albums I bought afterwards, like I bought Hit Mix 86, 87, 88, the 12 by 12 album, Night Beat 1 and 2, Entertainment USA. I bought Dance Energy 1 and 2. I bought all the Deep Heat albums. But for some reason, there's a little bit of a plateau around this time. And I, I don't know why, but there it is. So I, I know I didn't buy the album is the short, the short answer to that question. We can't talk about No 4 without talking about, on CBS and Warner Records, the Hits album. Ah, yes. And, of course, the, historically, the interesting story here, certainly in the album charts of 1984, compilation albums, absolutely ruled. Unless your name was Various Artists or Bob Marley, you did not have a long run at number one in the album charts. Lots of one-week, two-week wonders. However... 
across Now 2, Now 3 and the Hits album, mm-hmm. 21 weeks at number one. That's the longest stranglehold that compilations had on any year in the decade, which is quite incredible. And of course, the story is that Now 4 didn't make number one. It was kept off the number one spot by the Hits album. This is probably sacrilege to say. <laughs> I, think I think it's a, um, I think looking at it, it's a stronger album. There's a bit more variety in there. There's a far more American flavour to it. It's got Chuck Khan, Billy Ocean, the Jacksons, SOS band, Denise Williams, Miami Sound Machine, Sister Sledge. I mean, that's a good track list right there. That's a, that's a good 80s party, you know, right there. And I don't think the Now album compares as well um, in no. terms of its track listing because it seems to be a little bit all over the place. Uh, for example, you've got on, on side two of Now, you've got Queen, It's a Hard Life, Status Quo, The Wanderer, which is truly awful. <laughs> Big Country... East of Eden, YouTube Pride, Fergal Sharkey, and then it suddenly goes to OMB, Kim Wilde, and a track that I'd totally forgotten about, and then ends with Nick Kershaw. It's, it's a little bit messy. It's no secret that CBS and Warner got in on the act at the end of 1984. They'd realised that this was something that was working for EMI and Virgin. And they obviously sat down and said, the same way that Now did at the beginning of their journey, we're licensing these tracks out, we could do this ourselves. And as you say, this is a strong list across these record labels and probably makes for a better 1984 snapshot now than now Ford does for that reason because again I would assume round about the autumn time compilation there was songs that just weren't available that would have been available for now three or now two or now one I think as well the thought process into the four sides of the hits album works you've got a a very pop side one with Wham and Howard Jones Alison Moy and Paul Young they always go together I think we talked about this on episode two with Simon Basically, were they, from this, were they um, live aid together? They came yeah. in to live aid, yeah. Yeah, I think there's a contractual obligation that <laughs> um, they just the, the kind of togetherness. Side two says neon to yeah. me, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. the only song that is missing is Shannon. Side four is that rock side. Yeah. Again, you know, when I hear Gimme All Your Loving by ZZ Top, it must be followed by Jump by Van Halen for Jump that reason. Halen, yeah. This album stole the album charts for the end of 84. It was number one for seven weeks, right into 85. Now four sat as that bridesmaid position at number two. But I think it's because you have got on here and you've already mentioned acts like uh, Wham, Michael Jackson, Prince. It is big hitters. It is a very, very... 1984 album. If we look at Now 4 in a bit more detail, some of the track listing options are, are interesting to say the least. Yeah. Starting with Paul McCartney at the very beginning. Now, we've got this special dance mix on here. Yes. This also slightly divides people, to be honest, um, because it is quite a, a different version to it. I think there's, there's a, an argument that starting record one, side one with Wild Boys would have been better. Oh, yes. Now, I wouldn't lose Paul McCartney, but what I would do, because I don't think we'd have been allowed to, um, given that that is the play-out track on the end of Give My Regards to Broad Street, would that not have sounded better at the end of side four? Oh, okay. Actually, I've got Paul McCartney at the start side two. Oh, interesting. Um, Because I've gone side one. Based on the tracks that are here, I've gone down 
the uh, Maroda and Oki Electric Dreams as first track up, and then Bronski beat Y, and then Limal because they feel like new kids on the block in some regards, and yeah. they're kind of, you know, there's a little bit because we 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 talked about kind of films with you know musical films with you know big soundtracks, so that's why I had those there, and then I go OMD Culture Club, Eurythmics, Heaven Seventeen, and Thompson Twins because they feel like established acts in the second flush of youth, I suppose. So I, I that's what I went with side one, but I did Paul McCartney on side two and Queen on that side, and <laughs> Status Quo again, it's such an awful track. Um, Status Quo and UB40 together on side two. It's funny with Status Quo actually because. If you think about this in 1984, and it is, it is truly dreadful, that version, but not even 12 months later, there they are headlining live out. Status quo and UB40 are recurring now acts that always seem to find a place. I think it's the popularity of status quo, you're right. But that record two side one is, is clunky, to say the least. Yeah. I've unfortunately bumped poor Eugene Wilde off the end of side four. I would ask him to step aside for Paul McCartney and I'd slot Paul McCartney at the end of that side because I actually think that side four is quite strong. You know, you've got Ghostbusters sharing a a slot with the Hits album, Um, Pointer Sisters, Level 42. That that to me is one of Level 42's finest songs. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I love that track. Superb. Eurythmics, well, you needed Sex Crime on there, obviously, for the advert. Yeah. Madden Butterfly, fantastic. And Rockwell. So actually to play out with Paul McCartney's play out version of No More Lonely Nights would have worked. The only other slight thing I would have done, I would have taken out Big Country and I would have swapped Big Country, dramatic pause, for Love's Great Adventure. Oh, very good choice. Now, again, I don't know if Chrysalis would have licensed it because Ultravox were heavily promoting the collection album at the time and the only new track on that. With a free uh, remix. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, the only only new track on that was Love's Great Adventure, so I don't know if they would have given it. But (laughs) if you take that side there, it's still a bit clunky, but it would have been a slightly more 84 feel to it. And the last change I would make is the Kane Gang. I'd have swapped that for The Closest Thing to Heaven, which is a super herb song and a cover of respect yourself Mm, Mm. yeah so but um that other than that you've done a lot more thought than i have i've just relisted the tracks in the (laughs) order that i would prefer them but but whether that's me as a sort of 17 year old relisting them billy idol was big in 84 and i don't know whether billy idol would have been allowed to be on this album because of who he was signed to flash for fantasy and catch my fall were both out during the period that they could have been on this album yeah and it's a big, a big year for Billy Idol '84, I would argue. And obviously, the, the elephant in the room is um, the Band Aid single. I don't know if that ever did appear on a, a, a compilation album. It didn't that, appear on any of the no comp, uh, the numbered no albums. But certainly, that was recorded. That was recorded the day after this was, or the day before yeah. this was released. I though have memories of Christmas shopping trips of 1984. I would imagine lots of our Price and Woolworths carrier bags would have had if not one of these compilation albums, both of them, yeah. and the Band-Aid single in it. Yeah. 
because mm. that would have been those purchases. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it would have been an, an incredible coup for Now 4 to have a Band-Aid on there. Mm. But obviously, you can imagine the thought process about the funding, the finances. Well, that that would be the thing. And what, what percentage of money do you take? And it would yeah. open a massive can of worms, I'm sure. But equally, the following Christmas, 1985, you've got the first Now Christmas album and track yeah. one, side one, <laughs> is Band-Aid. Frankie, 84 was their year. Relax two tribes and then um the power of love but it, you know i think it was released after this this was released so that's probably the reason why and that frankie record was so big now two had bagged relax yeah. now three had bagged two tribes you just wonder if because i'm just looking down welcome to the pleasure dome had come out at the beginning of november um and obviously they were pitching for the christmas number one not obviously foreseeing bob geldof and Majur's slight detour on that on the on, on on the chart it absolutely would have would have slotted well into the album as well yeah. um, because 1984 is frankie i think more than anything else look into for all your records and tapes happy christmas boy george <laughs> thanks Marcia. for the real magic of christmas look into Woolworth. we forget how big singles were in 1984 if you look at this autumn moving into that Christmas market of 84, that end of November, Frankie was Hollywood were pushing for number one, Wham were pushing for number one. So there was, there was, a, there was a, a big singles market taking place. But now for, there's something incredibly nostalgically positive about it. And we talked earlier about this unadulterated escapism into 80s music. There are moments on that now four album that really do give you that. The Marauder and OK, Bronski Beat, Lamal. These are great songs. Great, oh, great brilliant. pop songs. They're brilliant, brilliant pop songs. I mean, Bronski Beat seemed to come out of nowhere, really. And suddenly they were everywhere. And it was, they, um, It Ain't Necessary So, I think, was another track that came out in the same year. And then they did the... The I Feel Love cover with yeah. you know, the following year. They they were they were huge. The record's been out a year. It's about time it's a hit. And now it is for Hazel Dean. It's called Searching. This is my Hazel Dean pitch. Hazel Dean should be on now for I think. Yeah. Because Hazel Dean, as you say, with Searching and Whatever I Do were two really, really big songs. And you watch back those Top of the Pops clips now and they were they were fun, energetic songs. Hazel Dean always looks fabulous. She's always enjoying herself. They were everything that pop embodied. Bronski Beat, to me, is the only real nod towards high energy on this album. Where would Hazel Dean have gone, though? There's a question I thought I'd, nobody would ever, ever ask me. Um... <laughs> Where, well, she has to sit up with Maroda and Oki and Electric Dreams and Bronski Beat simply because of the, the, the style of the sound. Does that make sense? It's yeah. got that electro. You know, we've touched on the fact that there's no real reference to sort of electro and sort of no. that on this album at all. And that was all beginning to happen and the breakdance movie. And I think she would probably sit on that side one side. Yeah, I would reckon Hazel Dean needs to be up there on, on side one. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick my neck out. I'm gonna I'm gonna retire UB40. I'm gonna I'm gonna side on <laughs> UB40 because I actually think Ghostbusters into Hazel Dean into oh, Pointer yeah. Sisters. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And you know what? That's a 1984 party right there. Isn't it, it is a 1984 party. It's interesting. You mentioned about the whole electro sound as well, which which again is slightly missing in this snapshot of '84. I did a quick look back at the album charts of 1984. Do you know there were 13 Street Sounds albums released in 1984? 
I did not know that, no. Literally, I, th- I think in some months there was more than one album released a month. Those Street Sounds Electro albums, you know, and big, big sound. And actually looking back across 1984 now, and again, looking at the way 1984 is often nostalgically portrayed, it doesn't often get that mention. There was a very interesting documentary not so long ago on BBC4 about the whole Brit funk scene as well, oh, yeah. which was fabulous. And again, I the whole list down about this. That's so funny you should say that because Freeze were that album, the Freeze album that had IOU and Not Gonna Get You and all that. That's a phenomenal album. And I had that on cassette on my, and I, I remember in 83, 84, I bought a uh, Sanyo C5 Ghetto Blaster. But one of the albums I played over and over on it was that Freeze album. And then there's David Joseph. High Tension, Central Line, Eye Level, Links, Capitat, oh. Imagination. Yeah, it's, it's a great documentary, that. And I've got, quite, I've got pretty much all of Eye Level's output from that period, partly because their graphic design was, was amazing. Their cover art was always really good. But David, David Joseph, You Can't Hide Your Love From Me, is a, is yeah. a phenomenal it's record. And there's a really good clip on um, YouTube of uh, Greg Wilson uh, teaching uh, how to mix... Um, you know, on a, it might even be on the, on, on the tube show and he's teaching how to mix and the track he's using is that David Joseph track where he's got two versions of it and he's sort of basically extending the, the instrumental break by going back to back on the track. It's a, an amazing record. And certainly as now developed over the years, the dance scene became a much, much bigger element of those now albums. But at this point, slight reservation. So yeah, getting... it's a kind of calm before the storm, really, because yeah. you end 84, as we talked about, with Band-Aid, and, you know, that definitely is a, is a massive gear change. And from memory going into 85, music scene sort of starts, it sort of goes a little bit pastely, there's another new word, <laughs> and it, it becomes more American after 84. I mean, we, I know the Hits album sort of touches on it, but I think it sort of goes more American and then that sort of begin, then that sort of starts to become house music because it sort of then goes into club, it becomes club culture. That's the thing. Club culture at the start of the 80s is an underground thing. Yeah. And 85, 86, it's 84 into 85. And then 86, it's sort of the game changes again. So, I th- yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think it is a calm before the storm. Well, here we are at the end of another night on BBC One and about, uh, well, getting on for two hours into 1985. Thank you for joining us from all of us in the BBC One control room. Happy New Year! Now, before we finish, we started talking about Danny Minogue and Sinead O'Connor. You have to give us some more detail on that one, Richard. I ha- yeah, well, it, um, I, I realise in the intro it sort of implies it was on Jonathan Ross, but I actually did going live for a stint. Uh, I think it was also in 91, so it was the start of 91. So on going live every Saturday morning, we had some great bands in, and actually it was that, it was that sort of post-Manchester era. So we had Soho do Hippie Chick, we had James doing Sit Down, Jesus Jones came on and did a track, uh, EMF came on and did I Believe, which is a better single to Unbelievable, I think. Um, they, used to do a, um, they used to do an item where members of the crew looked like famous people. Sarah Green decided that I looked like Sinead O'Connor. Uh, and so one of the only times I've ever been on telly is dressed as Sinead O'Connor. 
and I was ma- being made up in this um, makeup room, and um, and I walked in and sat down in this chair, and there's Danny Minogue. So I ended getting introduced to Danny Minogue and sort of trying to explain who I was. Slightly overweight, bald bloke from Essex was going to be on the show dressed as Sinead O'Connor, and she, I don't think she could really fully get her head around it. Um, it's always that great element of watching slightly perplexed international pop stars on Saturday morning TV, though. Well, yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was such a great show, and it was it was yeah, it was great. I mean, it was early on going live and Saturday Superstore, and obviously, I think there's that five star phone in moment, and oh yeah, you know, yeah, everybody yeah. knows. And, I think know, Matt Bianco got it as well. Yeah, Bianco. yeah, they got it. But um, it's a shame because actually, Saturday morning telly was event telly, and it's yeah. it's it's sadly missing now. And I know they've tried to resurrect it and it comes and goes but you know the audience just isn't there anymore and it's a shame because certainly for us you know that was where you saw huge pop acts and you're rhyming off there the KLF and James and yeah. all these acts you know who were lining up to do Saturday morning telly because yeah, there was millions of kids watching that coming on I remember jumping in at the um I came back at the end of the year and I went to, a, I think it might have been the last of the series. I didn't do the end of that series of Going Live, but I think um, Take That were doing a very early performance. They'd come mm. on at that time. Um, I did do SMTV for a bit, actually. You're saying it, it did, you know, obviously that was at its peak, but I mean, ITV and Ant and Deck, obviously the rest yeah. is history, but, you know, you too came on yeah. and did a, did a special. If you think about it, that's pretty crazy. They were doing... I, in fact, it's the album. Is it all that you can leave behind? It's the album that they're just bringing out now as an anniversary. Yeah. 20, yes, 20 year anniversary. Yeah. So they did Elevation. I mean, the last, arguably the last great era of U2. Um, yeah. And they came on and did that. That was amazing. And to be in close proximity to them, yeah. you know, and knowing how globally successful they were at that point was, was pretty special. And, and, it, and actually, bizarrely, the kids in the audience probably not really knowing who they were. You know, no, exactly. It was, it was us, us crew getting off on it and all these kids, these sort of 15, 16-year-olds just wondering who the hell they were. I mean, I can still remember, though, going uh, way back to um, Saturday Superstore, it would have been, uh, when Ultravox came on to plug One Small Day and Smidjur and Criss Cross were on looking tired and grumpy and, you know, whatever else they were at 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning. <laughs> but, you know, the absolute event TV-ness for, you know, a 12-year-old Ultravox fan to see them there... It worked because this was where artists knew they could get huge audiences. And the timing of it on a Saturday morning before kids fired off to shopping centres and to record stores, yeah. it made perfect sense. And yeah. uh, without sounding too nostalgic, it's something I think that's not there anymore and it's a bit of a shame. You know, nobody sits in front of the telly at the moment, yeah, anymore. The way we grew up with it, it just doesn't happen. You're absolutely right. Kids are on YouTube or whatever they are on their phones. There's yeah. not there's not that thing that you, you know you all sit around and watch i mean arguably you've got a bit of it on a saturday night with strictly and mm. even those shows by comparison to 20 years ago you know before it's just not the same we 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 ingest uh, music and you know and things so many other ways streaming services and all the rest of it it's just there's too much choice that's yeah. I mean, it's good for me working in the telly business. <laughs> you know, it, it, there is there is way too much choice of, uh, of you know of, of how we get our you know our hits. Richard, thank you so much. We have revisited 
1984, the autumn of 84, we've revisited now four. We've put some demons to bed with the Hits album. Um, and we've also had the pleasure of revisiting your musical journey as well. So thank you so much. Thank you, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I've, yeah, I've spent a week gemming up on this. So it's been like an exam. Um, but yeah, no, I've, I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me.